job. Sit around, think about what makes churches tick. And I know a lot of folks with church trauma. They've been hurt by things churches have done. Things pastors have done in the past. And of course, no church is perfect. Um, since it is made up with people who are, are still growing to be more like Jesus and dealing with their own sin. So we've always got that. But yet, I think when we look at the scriptures, we, we would find that church should be a place of growth to become more like Jesus. It should be a, a place of refuge, not a place of hurt. I spend a lot of time thinking about stuff like that. Think about things like, what, what, is a, what, is a, what does it really mean to be a healthy church? What does a biblically healthy church look like? Um, does it have, have to have a really nice building? Well, I hope not, because there's a lot of churches throughout the world that are probably very good churches that do not have buildings. Does it need to have at least a thousand people with multiple services? Seems to be a modern American standard. Or, or the big thing now, which is to have multiple campuses where the preacher preaches at the main campus, but is on a video screen at like a whole bunch of other campuses. Maybe the preacher needs to have a lot of podcasts, listens. Christian bestsellers and that sort of thing. Um, they used to have lots of programs. Food pantry. Mystery of the homeless. You name it. Uh, probably come up with a lot of things. That people think what makes for a good church. Well, we have seven Sundays until I take my vacation. Right, so Richie's looking forward to that eight Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where I get to go sit in a cabin on Sunset Lake in Upper Michigan where there's no internet. Yeah. Until then, for the next seven Sundays, we're going to look at the letters, the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at that with an eye sort of toward what, what is what does Jesus want churches to be like? Now, you understand we use the word church in a couple of ways. We actually, in English, use it a lot of different ways. A lot of times we use it to refer to a building. The Bible never uses it that way, so, so don't, don't worry about that. Um, but I do want us to be clear, you know, that a church in the most general sense is a group of saved people gathered in the name of Jesus. You might add that they're a group that also celebrates the Lord's table together, maybe, or disciples people together, that sort of thing. And sometimes when we see the word church in the Bible, we're talking about the universal church, right? That's all believers in all places throughout all time. Church with a big C, maybe. You might want to see that as. But here, we're talking about the local church, right? Which is the gathering of believers that are connected in some sort of fellowship, normally geographically. Not always anymore. It doesn't necessarily have to be geographically. I realize that because of the wonderful power of the Zoom and those sorts of things, that there are folks who are part of churches that they don't necessarily all meet geographically, but they still function as fellow things. They still do a lot of things that churches do. And I'm okay with that. Well, each of the seven messages in the book of Revelation, Jesus gives a message to a real local church. These aren't some sort of, you know, if you've, if you've been around theology much or you've read the commentaries, there are like, the theory that 
The seven churches are actually seven ages of church history. Huh? What? Well, these churches were real groups of real people in real cities. These places existed. You're going to get into eternity someday, and you're going to meet some of these people. Apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the first letter comes to the church of Ephesus. Now, most scholars agree that John on the Isle of Patmos, this is somewhere around 90 AD, very late in the first century. Um, John is probably the last living apostle at this point. He's been exiled. And uh, he's here, he's on the Isle of Patmos. And we can get kind of a, an idea here. Here's all the seven churches and the ones in yellow. And so here's Ephesus right here. There's this bay right here. You can't see from this map, but there's a river called the Caixa River that comes this way. And that, um, that bay right there, a lot of the roads from Asia Minor, all these cities, they come to Ephesus. And so it became the most important city in Asia Minor. It had this large harbor. There was scholars say anywhere from 250 to 500,000 people that lived there in the first century. Um, it's at the intersection of all these land and sea routes. And of course, it was well known for its giant uh, temple of Artemis. And it was the center of her worship in Asia Minor. And her worship involved temple prostitutes um, and banking, which I think is an interesting combination. Yes. <laughs> 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 Weird. Okay, but the uh, ancient philosopher Heraclitus was called the weeping philosopher because he wrote that no one could look upon the immorality of Ephesus and not weep. So if the if the pagans felt it was that bad, imagine what it was like to be part of the church of Ephesus. The Roman governor resided there, even though Pergamum was the actual capital city of Asia Minor. Now we know from Acts chapter 19, Paul spent like two and a half, three years there, building a very strong church. It's the one, it's the place he spent the most time on his missionary journeys besides Rome was Ephesus. And of course, when we read the letter of Ephesians that he writes to them, it doesn't seem to be, doesn't address any problems or anything in the church. They were doing good. So you have a large, powerful, rich city with this, at least at one time, strong church, one that Paul had invested more time into than any other single church. But we see that they developed a core issue by the time Jesus appears to John. But before we talk about that, let's look at the com their commendation, Jesus' commendation for Ephesus. I think if we were going to describe the church at Ephesus in kind of modern terms, we would say that they are firmly standing for the truth. Right? Their commendation has to all do with standing for the truth, for enduring with the truth in what was clearly a hostile environment. In fact, you'll remember in Acts 19, Paul and Silas end up leaving Ephesus because they cause a riot in the city and the silversmiths who are worried about their trade and making these little silver statues of Artemis, they have a riot and they, they run Paul and Silas out of town. Notice what he says. Verses 2 and 3, verse 6. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. How you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested 
those who call themselves apostles are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Do not grow weary. And that this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So it says the Ephesians, the Ephesians they tested anyone claiming to be any kind of messenger for Jesus. And remember, there, there was a lot of folks going around by this time, okay? There were itinerant preachers coming around to various cities and talking about various things and that sort of thing. Um, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have all that. So people traveled on foot. And people traveled to cities and they were preaching. They'd come to the church and, oh, I'm the apostle so-and-so or I'm bishop so-and-so or, or whatever. And, you know. And so the Ephesians, they tested these people. In other words, they, they examined them according to the truth. Find out if their message was genuine or false. And sounds like they kind of ran the false ones out of town. Also mentions this group called the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a group that they, they, they claimed, they professed Christ, but they believed that because sin was forgiven in Christ, that they had so much freedom, they could do whatever they wanted without consequence. They could just do whatever they wanted. Sin's forgiven, man. We just we peace, we do whatever we want. Sounds like a lot of people these days, doesn't it? A lot of churches like that. God just loves you and he wants you to be happy. It's all about you. You should be able to do what makes you happy, even if God calls it sin. Bible times know anyway. I mean, they're old. Times have changed. They don't understand what we know now, right? That's modern American Christianity. No sin anymore. But Jesus is saying truth matters. He desires his people to understand and stand firm on truth. Even when all society is hostile to the truth. Truth matters. We've got some responsibility. Comes with responsibility to the people who have it. First of all, is, is to be steeped in truth. Gotta learn as much as possible. And I'm gonna say that starts with God's Word. It is the objective revelation from God we have to base our understanding of truth on. Now, there's, that's not to say there aren't, there isn't truth in other places. A math textbook holds a certain kind of truth, does it not? Right? physics textbook holds some truth until 50 years later they change all their theories and come up with something new. <laughs> but that's not the same as God's truth. Because God's word is the final arbiter of spiritual and moral truth of the things that it speaks to. Now, now, I'm going to take an aside on that. And can I also say, because Christians are very bad at this, stop trying to force the Bible to speak to things it doesn't speak to. Okay? It's not a science textbook. Keep that in mind. Gotta be careful about that. Man, it's easy to it's easy to want to just force it to say things it doesn't say. And I'm not saying people even bad intention when they do it. Maybe they have good intentions. So we study it as the best way we have to know what God wants from us and how he's revealed to us the best way to live. And so that's how we come at the truth. 
That reminds me probably, you know, you know they train treasury agents to find counterfeit currency? So well, there, must be a, there must be a lot of counterfeit currency out there. I was at Menards yesterday getting some paint scrapers, and there was a little sign right by where the, the gal was, the, she was right here, you know, you know when you go to Menards, the person who's checking out is standing here, you put your stuff here. There was a sign right by her thing that said something about, you know, counterfeit currency team, blah, blah, blah. I'm just thinking, they have a whole team to deal with counterfeit currency at Menards? That's kind of amazing to think about. There's that much counterfeit currency out there? I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, they never check the 20 diaper in my basement. So. <laughs> Actually, you, you know that in any modern printer, if you try to print out currency in any modern printer, it won't work. They have a chip in their design so you can't, like, if you can't take a, just for fun, even, if you take a try to scan a bill and print it, it'll be all weird. Apparently the government has a cornered market on printing money, which they're really good at. Print lots of it. So anyway, they don't train treasury agents by showing them a bunch of counterfeit 20s. How do you know that? How do I know what? Does the government print a lot of money? Yeah, well, the printer pay. I work in business IT. Is that true? Yes. For a second, I was like, it's just like it's just like every printer. Has, you can't really see them without a magnifying glass, but on every page they print, they have a series of, of little micro dots, and they're yellow if they happen to be in color printers, so they can identify what printer anything's printed on. So anyway, back to, can I, I'm going back to counterfeit twenties. <laughs> they do not train treasury agents by showing them a bunch of counterfeit bills. They take and they make them memorize and perfect understanding every aspect of what a genuine bill is. Because if you know the genuine thing, you will spot the counterfeit easily. And that's why we start with God's word. No more of his word, we're gonna be better equipped then to also the second responsibility of truth is discern error. Okay, this is where kind of the combination of God's word and his spirit and prayer and using your brain come together. you need all those things. You ever wonder why guys like Joel Osteen are so popular? Now, if you like Joel Osteen, I'm very sorry. I'm about to step on your toes really hard. Because he tells people what they want to hear, but it's only partial truth. There's some truth in there, but it's a partial truth. So it sounds really good, but it's a lie. And to somebody who's not studying God's word and prayerful and thinking through that, it's going to be easy to just believe Joel. He has a book. Actually, it was his first book. It's entitled, Your Best Life Now. Well, I want to have my best life. Does anybody not want to have their best life? I mean, right? I don't want to have a bad life. And I'll get up in the morning and go, man, if I could just really just have a really rotten day today. suffering or 
becoming like Jesus or rejecting sin or being holy. Nothing about, nothing about that memo. It's only about you being wealthy and healthy and happy. It's not about those things like suffering and becoming like Jesus and sin and holiness. No, things are in the Bible. A lot of people promote some nice sounding half-truths. So we need to be discerning so we don't get sucked into that sort of unhealthy teaching. Third responsibility of truth is you gotta be willing to be rejected. None of us like this. We like to be accepted. We want people to like us. We want to get along with people. Right? Isn't that true? In fact, we, we sometimes, we, 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 we're even willing to have this like veneer of we all get along. You know, right with our neighbors, our coworkers, our family. Sometimes we even call it Iowa nice. Right? But you know what Iowa nice in my mind is? It means we're just nice enough that we don't let you know who we are. <laughs> Jesus tells us the opposite. This is what Jesus says. See, people don't like this. People don't like what Jesus says. So like, people only like this stuff about love. And Jesus says, you know, uh, yeah. Luke 6.22, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Well, you know, I know I wake up a lot of days thinking to myself, man, I hope that I get reviled and my name spurned as evil. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. No. But if we're following Jesus, then he and his ways come first. And that means some people might not like us. We might be uncomfortable. We might even have a few people who think, think that we're sort of nuts. I mean, you guys already think I'm nuts. But we also know that people in our culture are increasingly lost, and they're increasingly filled with hopelessness and pain. And Jesus wants to step into those places, and so they need to hear about him. Only Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Only he's going to bring real victory over sin and grant eternal life to people that are spiritually dead in their sins. You probably heard on the news last night, if you watched the news or on the internet or anywhere, about this horrific mass shooting in Buffalo yesterday. At the Topps grocery store. At Topps out in Seattle. They said the best Chinese food. And, um, I did. Topps grocery store. <laughs> Ten people dead, more wounded, racial hate crime. Guy, I mean, the guy left the manifesto, right, of, of how he hates black people and how he traveled four hours to specifically kill black people. It's horrible. But I can also promise you, there is no political solution to hate or racism, or murder, or those sorts of things. They are spiritual problems. And only Jesus can bring the healing necessary to cure those evils. And he generally brings that healing through his people. Now, I want to point out, this is not in opposition to what I said a couple weeks ago about keeping the peace, right? I talked about it's important for us to keep the peace. You don't always have to be right about everything. 
Truth has responsibilities, but it is not an excuse to be obnoxious. Some people think that knowing the truth means they should use it to bludgeon people with. That they're somehow going to beat them into submission. And in our culture, there's all sorts of folks who would love to have some sort of bloody cultural civil war. We are not to be drawn into that. Knowing the truth doesn't mean we get to be obnoxious about it. We need to be horrible people about it. We need to remember in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repent. Not just whacking us hard upside the head with a giant King James family Bible. See, truth isn't enough. And that's where the Ephesians kind of fell apart. Because our truth has to be tempered by love if it's going to be presented the way Jesus expects, which is where the Ephesians seem to have gone astray. What the Ephesians lost was their love. It says in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Revelation, but this I have against you, you've abandoned the love you had at first. They lost the love they had at first. They no longer put the love relationship with Jesus first. It was just doing stuff. Did a lot of stuff. They stood for the truth. They stood firm, it says. They endured. But their lives had more to do with just, just doing church stuff and purity and service of the person they were serving, the Lord of the church himself, and the people that he died for. And see, when we lose our love for Jesus, we lose the true love for people, right? Because that, they go together. The two great commandments are to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. They're not separate. You don't get to have one without the other. so busy doing things that they probably thought were for Jesus. They were so busy guarding truth about Jesus and checking all the itinerant preachers and all that kind of stuff that they weren't spending their time loving Jesus and loving people. They're so busy standing for the truth they aren't leading anyone to the truth. Have you ever met one of those folks from a, from a KJV only church? Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Folks that are KJV only. Not just that they use God. If you want to use the King David version, I got no problem with that. It's totally cool. But there's some churches, man, where they they spend so much time defending the fact that their, their idea that the King James version is the only acceptable English Bible, that somehow Jesus gets lost in the translation. shouldn't help the poor, or that we shouldn't seek justice for all people. 
Uh, actually, I would argue we should be on the forefront of those things. But in being on the forefront of those things, they have a need that's even greater than just those things. I used to believe that old maxim, right, about they won't know how much, they won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've all heard that, I'm sure. I, I would like to argue that is a false dichotomy. Why can't we care about both? Can't I care about them as people with needs and also care about the spiritual needs? Because I'm going to argue if we don't care about both, then we're really not truly loving. Because if you're, merely, if you're merely filling somebody's belly or giving them a coat who is still destined for eternal separation from God in a place of punishment for their sins, that is probably not loving them the way God loves them. God loves them even more than that. Now, does God want them to be fed and warm? Yeah. Does God want us to be part of them being fed and warm? Yeah. God, did God not also send Jesus to die on the cross for them so that they could have eternal life and become a new creation? Yes. So we need truth. We need love. And it seems like, judging from the Ephesian church, it's easier to lose the love part. So what should we do? What did he tell them to do? Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he tells them, first he tells them to remember. He says, go back to what, what you used to be like. Remember what it was like when, when, you were, when your faith was newer, when it, when it was refreshed. You ever notice how people who are, are kind of newer believers, they're, they're real excited about Jesus. And unfortunately, for some reason in church, we, we sort of pour cold water on that excitement sometimes. Kind of like, okay, whoa, buddy. Calm down. Calm down. Yeah, Jesus loves you this I know. But you know, when we really love someone or something, we just can't help talking about it or them. I really love guitars. So I talk about them with anyone who will listen. I like guitars. We need to love Jesus like that. Then he tells them to repent. Now, repent, of course, in its most basic form is the idea of to change your mind. And in particular here, I think he's telling them that they need to identify what they're not doing Jesus' way and make a change. They're to turn around. They need to have a change of mind about what it means to love God and love other people. Realizing that loving others means helping them become acquainted with the loving God through Jesus and not just standing for the truth. And then he tells them to do what, what they once did. Do what they once did. What does that mean? He says, do the works you did at first. I don't think he means a service project. I think the works that they did at first were the works of loving Jesus and loving people. You know, over time, in every church, its evangelistic fervor sort of, sort of dies. Kind of cools down. The, the church growth people, they must have brought up the doctrine of the ministry of church growth, um, tell us that the most effective way in America currently to win people to Christ is to plant a new church. Because their studies all show that after approximately 25 years, 
almost all churches' conversion rate drops to a statistical anomaly. It's not that much going on, not that many new believers. And by 25 years, even a successful church plant will have become concerned with all the trappings of modern church, which is building bodies and budgets. Go hang out with a bunch of other pastors, and inevitably the talk will turn to building bodies and budgets. True. Doesn't have to be that way. Because the gospel message is as powerful now as it ever was. And God's truth is as true as it ever has been. Christ makes a promise to the Ephesian church. He says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's a promise there. The one who conquers, or if you have an older version, we'll use the word overcomes, it's going to be eternal life. Because that's, that's our concern ultimately for people, is eternal life. The truth is not just about being right. It's not about creating some sort of moral paradise where the government enforces God's ways. Love isn't just about meeting temporal needs or helping others or making them feel good. Truth and love together are ultimately about eternal life. That's what Jesus wants. He wants us to be desperately concerned with the eternal destiny of people. Not just their temporal needs, not their conformity to a particular set of ideals, no matter how true. Jesus desires us to truly be willing to love people enough to even be willing in our helping of them to risk offense by sharing the gospel. So that's our first lesson about being a healthy church. Standing firm on the truth, but balancing that with being full of love for other people and being ready to share the most important truth, that Jesus died and he rose again so that everyone who would believe in him given of their sins and have eternal life. Everyone who would believe in him. Not just the people that look like us. Not just the people that act like us. Everyone. That would be a great first step to a healthy church. Let's pray. Father, as we are gathered, we uh, see your word. We certainly want to be a church that, that stands on your truth. We also want to be a church that is loving of other people, of all sorts of other people, of every every stripe and kind. And Father, you don't uh, you don't put any limits on who you might call to come to follow Jesus and who we are to love and who you love. So help us to be what Jesus wanted to be a church, a church that not only was great at the truth, but was great they would be great at love and loving people with the truth. That we would be a church that helps people to come know Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, to have that eternal life. And to give you the glory for it.